You're listening to The Catholic Podcast. Welcome back to The Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. So, as you may know, this Easter season we're doing a series on conversion stories, and there was one that we sort of teased back in episode 55. We gave a short clip from Chad Perot, and then said, if you're interested, reach out, and we'd be happy to sit down with him and do a full episode. And this is that full episode. So, first of all, uh, Chad, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Chad Perot. I work for Holy Family School of Faith with Joe, and been there for almost four years now, married to a beautiful wife. We have four kids and one that is coming any day now. Congratulations, and thanks for coming on the show. You bet. So, actually, those biographical details are going to be a little bit of a, a spoiler for some of the story that I think is about That's to come. That's true. But it'll, it'll let people know everything works out well in the end, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but this is a journey which, if you listen to episode 55, you know, has a lot of suffering, but a lot of grace amidst that suffering. So why don't we begin, if you would, share about your initial encounter with Christ, even just growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So I grew up in in a Christian evangelical home, <clears throat> really a Protestant evangelical home. Um, both my parents were very faithful. I think one one thing to say right off the bat is my dad actually grew up Catholic uh, and was one of those just very stereotypical uh, converts into evangelicalism. <clears throat> Didn't really experience a an awakening of sorts in the Catholic Church and did experience an awakening in the Evangelical Church and then was educated and kind of um, was anti-Catholic in, for much of my childhood. So I kind of grew up really without a chance in objectively seeing Catholicism as a good thing. <clears throat> um, but nevertheless, my parents were really were really faithful in their in their piety. Uh, prayed daily. Uh, we would always go to church. We would serve in a number of different capacities, go on mission trips, go on service trips, go on, uh, we would go to camps, VBSs, everything, you name it. Uh, my parents were incredibly involved in my faith. And that said, I my faith really up through high school was kind of just a, a youth group faith, meaning I went to church, I did decent things, um, it was a checklist of, of many of many sorts. And then really going into college that summer, right before college, I had this just massive awakening where for the first time in my life, I began to really pursue and talk with and think about God and his life in me. What led to that major moment, if, if you yeah, can kind of I put mean, a, a pin on it? <laughs> um, we were out of, honestly, I mean, it was just the Holy Spirit moment. We were we were on a retreat, a camp out, my church youth group. We, we did a bike ride trip to Clinton Lake every year from Olathe, which is about 40 miles. And um, camping and the youth intern that summer just gave a campfire devotion. Wow. And literally, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I remember going home thinking thinking about God for the first time in a way that was on my own. And when I got home that weekend, I cracked open my Bible really for the first time ever and just began to read. And I read through the whole New Testament in probably a couple weeks and just couldn't couldn't put it down, couldn't couldn't put God down really for, well, until now. <laughs> I mean, I'm not putting it down <laughs> yeah, now either. So yeah, this is actually a funny side story. Jerome uses that until now yeah. uh, in his defense of the perpetual virginity of Mary <laughs> by saying someone when you say until now, you mean just perpetual. Yeah. Yep. That until up, doesn't mean up to now. <laughs> up to and including yeah. now. Yeah. So if Chad is an atheist by the time this episode runs, <laughs> then we'll know. This was a terrible bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> so this was a an incredible transformative experience. And it seems like this really changed occupationally your trajectory before and after becoming Catholic. You want to share a little bit about that 
maybe that sort of speak professional sure, segment. Yeah, really? yeah. So I went to college right after that, majored in history. My parents were never really um, pushing me towards a specific career path. So I majored in history simply because I loved history and uh, didn't get an education degree, didn't really have a professional degree, but really I'd say sophomore, junior year, I started thinking very seriously about ministry. And I'd say junior, senior year, I would started thinking very seriously about seminary. <clears throat> and so I graduated from Kansas State University. Um, and in that time, I, I, I got to say, you know, I, I got involved in a ministry called the Navigators. Um how do they compare to something like Campus Crusade? I mean, I know on yeah. the Catholic side, we hear about these different groups. Yeah. I'd say the niche of the Navigators, they're all the same in the sense that um, they believe in one-on-one discipleship and they believe in evangelization. Mm-hmm. I think the niche of the Navigators is, yes, it's that one-on-one discipleship, uh, evangelization, a lot of small group Bible studies, but... They're better with maps. It, yeah. Yeah. Better with maps and stars. Um, but most importantly, I think what I learned especially is they really focus on scripture memorization, scripture memorization, not just to memorize scripture, but scripture memorization in order to meditate, Mm. in order to chew on God's word and let that be an experiential prayer that changes us. And so that was a huge part of my, um, college, you know, formation process, um, yeah, so that's how I would say it's more distinct. That's a good, I think it's a good wake-up call even for some of the Catholic listeners. I mean, St. Jerome has this great passage where he says, If the scriptures are what teach us but the wisdom and the power of God, then ignorance of the scripture yeah. is ignorance of Christ. That if you want to know what God is doing in your life, what God can do for your life, it's incumbent upon you to really chew on scripture. Not just to, like, listen to it. Not just to, like, let it go in one ear and out the other but to meditate on it and really chew on it. And I think this is one of the benefits of the fact that we have, you know, Bibles in every home now. Right. That there's no excuse not to take a look at it, not to uh, read through it and sort of ask, God, what are you saying to me through this? Yeah. That is, I'm glad to hear that because I think that's still a big part of your life now as a counselor. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting, though. I, I will say over the past couple of weeks I've been reflecting on there there hasn't been there's been something that's just not been right in my prayer life and I've realized you know I'm not really um diving into big portions of scripture Mm -hmm. like I used to you know you do the daily readings and you get these small sections which is good but sometimes I just need to you know it'd be like watching a movie and dividing it up into 22 different viewings and you finally get through the movie. Well, sometimes you just need to watch the movie all all the way through. And I think that that's kind of the, I'm I'm trying to get back to those roots of reading big chunks of scripture. Um, But yeah, it's absolutely a part of my faith still. That's excellent. I think it also, this points out, uh, there's kind of a stereotype that I think is largely true that good Catholics become Protestant and bad Catholics, I'm sorry, good Protestants become Catholic and (laughs) bad Catholics become Protestants. So when you hear these conversion stories, I think there are largely uh, two features. Now you can correct me if this isn't (laughs) your experience, but I find when I hear ex-Catholics give their conversion story, they largely were never super well connected as Catholics. They often, and statistically this is true, the predominant exodus happens in the teenage years or early 20s. And they tend to have a sort of resentment towards Catholicism for having badly formed or badly prepared them. And so there's kind of this, I call it the ex-girlfriend mentality, where there's like very little good to say frequently. Now, there are plenty of exceptions to that. Right. But that's the general demographic trend. Whereas, at least in my experience, I don't have the stats for this, but the Protestants who become Catholic that I know tend to, A, uh, take a lot slower time reasoning their way into the faith kind of step by step there's a process coming in it's not just like they have a bad sermon or a bad experience or uh and then two and this is i think really uh in a way something that's very positive with evangelical protestantism specifically is they tend to have very positive things to say where they're not rejecting what they had in protestantism they're accepting more kind of coming into a fullness rather than than it being a, a conversion of rejection in the same way right that's totally true. So it's there's an interesting statistic in Sherry Waddell's book, Forming Intentional Disciples. And I don't know exactly the statistic, but it's essentially uh, those 
those emerging adults, the 18 to 25 year olds, um, really there's a one-to-one correlation that those who leave the faith have never had a, a, a personal encounter with God, or they don't see God as a person they can relate with. And so I think that's also an interesting correlation that um, we're just doing a poor job as Catholics, I think, in helping helping kids and people understand that God is deeply personal, which is sad because we have the Eucharist, you know, but for some reason there's a major disconnect that's happening there. Amen. So, okay, the point we are in your story, yeah. you're going deeper in Scripture, it's transformative, you're learning to, you've got this map of Scripture the navigators have given you. Yep. And and then what happens in your life? So I started, I graduated um, from K-State, as I said, with in a history degree, and I went immediately to a seminary in Chicago area called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, and jumped straight into a Master's in Divinity program, which was about a four-year program for me. Um, now, how does that compare with, I mean, when Catholics hear seminary yeah. and Protestants hear seminary or, or seminary school, I think is often the way they'll describe it. What, yeah. what does that look like? How are they different? How are they similar? I mean, I don't know because I wasn't in the <laughs> seminary process, but you can probably elaborate on this. Uh, I think the the one thing that's uh, united that they're the same are, it, it is a calling. Mm-hmm. So I think that hopefully there is some, at least subjective calling of a person who has a great desire to know God and to serve God in ministry and they're training to do this. And um, so I, I had that desire and I, I would say my objective calling was was not necessarily from the church or from some priest who is the recruiter or the archbishop or anything like that. It's, it's more like my parents were, were deeply in favor and my parents were, were the type that never pushed me. Mm-hmm. This was an interesting thing because I was kind of lollygagging in terms of what I wanted to do after college. And I remember going up to dinner with them and they literally sat me down and they said, Chad, you know, we think you should go to seminary and here's why. And they gave me a, a number of reasons. Well, first of all, they'd never really told me what to do ever. So the fact that they sat me down and did that, that was really confirming. And then I, I talked to a number of other people, probably two or three other people that I deeply respected, and they all kind of pushed seminary. And so I thought that was the right track. Um, and it, it also aligned with my desires as well. I really wanted that as well. That's a good set of, you know, you get that external urging, but there has to be that internal sense of being called or the external is not going to cut it. That is definitely something in common with the Catholic sense of vocation and the Catholic experience with seminary, but even with something like marriage. If, if everyone around you is saying, oh, she's a great fit for you, but you don't feel it, (laughs) that's a big red flag. You have to have that part as well. Right. I'd say the major difference is that seminary, at least in the um, evangelical sense is very much like just another grad school. Mm. Um, I'm paying for it. You know, you can get some scholarships here and there, but essentially it's me choosing a seminary. It's me going to that seminary, taking the classes I need to take. And then after that, even finding, so to speak, putting my name out in a resume and getting a job just like I would if I went to any graduate school, whereas obviously in the Catholic sense, it's very different. Yeah. In fact, so if you were to go back a few decades, you would find some people went through seminary as independent seminarians on the Catholic side, Hmm. very similarly to what you're describing. They got theological formation and they tried to find a diocese that would accept them. But that's a really strange way to do it because in the Catholic context, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, you discern with the diocese. The diocese says, we think you're a good fit. Let's see how you do in formation, and then we'll we'll kind of make a final decision. And so it's almost like uh, a yes to dating, whereas the Protestant way it almost seems like planning the wedding and then finding the bride. <laughs> That's very true. It can be so. Um, part of the pro- I'll go into this and part of the process. So I became eventually a Presbyterian pastor. I was an ordained Presbyterian pastor, and even though the seminary that I went to was not Presbyterian. Uh, the Presbyterian denomination has a pretty strenuous process in discerning whether a person should be ordained. So we have about two or three years where we're under a shepherd, uh, where the presbytery, the regional director, leaders um, are overseeing us. We have constant interviews. And 
And then we do testing really throughout those two or three years. No matter what seminary you go to, you still have to go through this arduous process. And you can do this during seminary, or in my case, you can do it um, after seminary in some cases. So How long did that process take? It's about, it took me about two years. Wow. Uh, but that's not including the seminary. I mean, you had to have the degree as well. Right. So It's fascinating, too. I mean, I think one of the details you just mentioned as an aside is you didn't go to a Presbyterian seminary and then became right. a Presbyterian pastor. Right. Like... From a Catholic perspective, again, it would be like, right. what in the world? You know, like if if you had a Catholic who was like, I, I only went to a Presbyterian seminary, they'd be like, well, you're not really ready to be a priest. Right. Because there's more, there's something specifically Catholic you need to be inculcated in. Yep. And it seems like in modern Protestantism, there's less of a sense of our denomination is actually the right one. You need to be formed in this specific tradition. Is yeah. that a fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, there's a common cliche that's, uh, the evangelicals major on the majors and they minor on the minors. And the majors are kind of subjectively major. Mm-hmm. I would I would say the issues of maybe the Apostles' Creed are major. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they have the other big ones like justification by faith alone, sola scriptura, mm-hmm. uh, sola fide, sola faith. Um, so those are the majors. And then the minors are, you know, maybe like, women in the ministry some would consider that minor some would consider that major or uh whether or not you believe in who knows six-day creation yeah something like that exactly i think one of the issues at least again from an outsider's perspective looking in uh doug beaumont who's a convert to catholicism uh, made a list of of issues that are divisive within protestantism and his point was that there's this in essentials unity, or in, in essentials, yeah, in essentials unity and non-essentials diversity and all yeah. things charity. And he said the problem is there's no authority structure to even tell us which ones are which. Yep. And he had something like 44 different topics and said which ones are major, which ones are minor. Like women in ministry, six-day creationism, which things are you have to hold this and which ones are we can agree to disagree and still be in communion. And it turns out without some sort of church structure... Not even just settling the issue, but just figuring out which issues need to be settled is an insurmountable kind of hurdle. I thought it was a really fascinating point. Yeah. Well, thank you, anyway, for giving <laughs> all of the Catholic listeners a little bit of primer. So then, so you go through seminary, and you become a Presbyterian pastor in Chicago. Can you tell us a little bit about the church? Uh, so, yeah, my congregation in particular, the one that I... So, I was a part of this congregation, even in seminary. Uh, prior to my ordination, but I was working for the church. So I was in this congregation. So this congregation was a second-generation Asian-American church, predominantly. So this is a whole a whole other world of things. For people listening on the uh, <laughs> podcast, uh, Chad is not Asian-American as far as I can yeah. tell. <laughs> far from it. But uh, So let me just share for those gringos out there who don't really understand any other culture other than our American white culture. Um, so a first generation Korean American or a first generation Taiwanese or a first generation Hispanic, wherever they're immigrating from into America, they would be people who were born and raised in their home country and they have the language and the culture and the ethnicity that's ingrained into them. And then as an adult, they move to America. So that's a first generation fill in the blank, wherever they're from. A second generation would be children of those parents who immigrated into America. And so they kind of have this hybrid ethnicity, even though they might be full-blooded Korean, Korean, uh, they're Korean American, meaning they have a Korean home where they learn Korean and the Korean culture and the Korean customs and the Korean food, but they're raised in America. And so there's this kind of dual identity that most people in this upbringing struggle with and have tension with. So the church that I was a part of had, we were about 250 people and most of them, I'd say probably 90% of them were Asian American, meaning Korean, Chinese, Taiwanese, um, predominantly those three, maybe uh, occasional Japanese American. Uh, so it was mostly Korean American, but then mixed in with a whole bunch of different other Asian identities. And how did you get connected with this church? Great question. When I went to seminary, 
there was a guy across the hall from me and we were, we were in very tight quarters and I was convinced I didn't want to get involved in a very big church. I wanted to just get my hands dirty right away in ministry. And this guy, uh, was a Korean, um, first generation Korean. And he was a youth pastor for these younger kids who were being raised in English. Uh, so they have the parents still worship in Korean and the kids worship in English. So it's a totally different, um, worship experience. Anyway, so I just, he, he invited me and I was like, Hey, what the heck? I've never experienced anything like this. So I went and I stayed and I got involved with him. And then I met another guy later on that year who was the head pastor of this church that I would eventually get involved with. And he was experiencing this weird thing that he couldn't understand. There were a lot of Caucasians who were beginning to come to his church, which was predominantly Asian American. And he was like, why in the heck are these Caucasians coming to my church? He didn't plan for that. And they were looking to hire. So they wanted to hire a Caucasian pastor who had some understanding of the Asian American culture. And coincidentally, that was me. (laughs) So that's how I got involved. Fascinating. It's certainly a unique journey. You're the first white pastor of an Asian American church that I've met. (laughs) Well, there you go. So, okay. Now, if you would, share a little bit about your personal life. Because I know this is is the saddest part of the story, but it's also one of the most beautiful parts of the story. If you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So, in 2006, I got married to Gloria. And Gloria, her background, she was Taiwanese-American. So, her parents were first generation. She's second generation. Um... We got married in 2006, and really since that time, she struggled with a disease called rheumatoid arthritis. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is just a chronic um, where your, your your cells think that your body is injured, and so they attack that injury, but really your body is healthy. And when they attack it, it forms inflammation and pain, chronic pain. Um, usually it happens in the joints. So for her, uh, this, this happened in all of her joints, really her knees, ankles, fingers, wrists, shoulders, eventually. Um, the bad thing about that was she was a professional musician. She was the worship director for our church. And, uh, so just experienced a number of different pains as she's trying to play guitar or piano or any other instrument that she was going on. So, Really, for um, for two and a half years, she deeply struggled with that, and we just were praying pretty much daily that she would experience healing, and uh, she's on all these medications, of course, at this time. And one morning, or one day, as we were talking, she really questioned whether or not she should be praying for her healing. And I asked her why, and she began to basically say, look, when for the last two and a half years as I've been praying to God, there's never been a time in my life where I have relied on God in such a way as now. And I'm afraid that if he heals me, I will begin to, you know, kind of go back to the status quo, to not rely on him anymore. And of course, she more than anybody wanted to be healed from the pain. But she was beginning to realize that her pain caused a greater spiritual closeness to God uh, through her weakness. And, and so it was just a bookmark in conversation. I never started praying for her not to be healed from that point on. But I think I began to think about it differently. So we had our first child, uh, Calissa, in 2009, and and then a couple years later we wanted to get, um, we wanted to have another child. The medications that she was on at the time, you you could get pregnant, but most likely the medications would terminate that pregnancy. So we had to wean off of the drugs, and then for a long time, it took about nine months to a year for us to get pregnant with Corinna. Well, the process of that was pretty bad because Glow's RA got worse and worse and worse, finally to the point where we were going to go back on medications and just forego the uh, trying to get pregnant. But then right at that time, we found out we were pregnant, which is great. And um, 
And then shortly after that, in that pregnancy, she started experiencing lung issues, shortness of breath that uh, we were concerned about. So we went in to see the doc and they found scarring, very nebulous scarring in the base of her lungs. Well, long story short, over the course of the next nine months, uh, really less than that, probably seven months, um, Glow was diagnosed with a, a disease called pulmonary fibrosis or usual interstitial lung disease, RA-related for the scientists out there. And um, in, geez, when was this? August 2012, she passed away. Um, so that's the short story. There's, there's a lot of things that are going on between that. So first of all, she was pregnant, as I mentioned. Um, Corinna came out 24 weeks early. She was one pound, eight ounces. And the reason she came out was because she was hypoxic. 24 weeks. 24 weeks old. Oh, yeah. Uh, what I say? 24 weeks early. Oh, 24 weeks early. Oh, geez. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, 16 weeks early. Um, one pound eight ounces was in the hospital for a hundred days. Uh, no major issues, but just tiny and she needed time to develop. Um, she came out because of Glow's sickness. And then after Corinna came out of the hospital about a month later, Glow went into the hospital wow. and, and then from that point she was in the hospital for about a month, uh, before she passed away. So, so you're left at this point in your life with this uh, incredibly painful sounding experience, plus a, a very small baby and yeah. another young child. Yeah, so Calissa was exactly three years of age, and Corinna was six months old, but she was actually only three months old uh, gestationally, so it was basically a newborn. And, yeah, I mean... It, <sighs> Here's the process. I mean, looking back on that, I was I was wrestling a lot during this whole process. I knew that Glow was sick, and I knew that her sickness was not something that we should be taking lightly. Um, that whole that whole process, yeah. I mean, it was it was a, a journey from beginning to end that shaped me in a number of ways. Um, one of the ways in particular was, was redemptive suffering. So I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Now, at the time, you're still Protestant. Oh, yeah. What What is your church saying about suffering? How are they approaching? What kind of yeah. theological resources do you have to draw on here? Yeah. You know, the beautiful thing and the difficult thing about Protestant evangelical background is you, you really don't have a rich depth of tradition and literature to draw from. You have the scripture and you have some commentaries on scripture. Um, but because the traditions are so short lived, mm -hmm. uh, well, do I turn, for example, do I turn to Luther or do I turn to Menno Simons or do I turn to Calvin or do I turn to, uh, some, some Baptist heritage or do I turn to John Wesley or they're all different strands of, of, mm -hmm theology and there's no one thing that roots them and so it's just my preference well as you know if i have 120 channels to choose from on television i'm going to watch very few of them you know so uh so i didn't know where to turn other than scripture now scripture let's just i mean it's scripture right so i did turn there and i wrestled with i wrestled with suffering in scripture um and there's two ways that you can really wrestle with scripture right you look at all the saints, and almost all of the saints, both old and new, deal with suffering. Easy. Easy. I mean, you can see that really clearly. The issue, though, that counters that is when you look at the Gospels, the people who deal with suffering are healed mm -hmm. by Jesus. And so I'm praying arduously that Jesus would heal Glow, um, and he's seemingly not doing that. And then I'm looking at, you know, all of the suffering and I'm saying, well, maybe this is God's will in that sense. Um, but then there was, there was one particular charismatic experience where I had, where, uh, uh, as I was saying, you know, 
Um, I was praying pretty, pretty diligently in this whole process, fasting a number of times. So there was one retreat. This would have been six months before Glow passed away. Uh, I, I fasted a few days before um, this retreat and then went on a prayer retreat. And during that prayer retreat, very clearly heard uh, God communicate to me. And he said very clearly, Chad, I want you to let go. Let go of your control over glow. That was one big thing that he said. And the second thing is, he said, I want you to pray that the kingdom of God would come through her suffering. And I wept, first of all, um, but it was also, I, I felt after that an incredible peace that God was in control and that I should pray that the kingdom of God would come through her suffering. I didn't know what that meant. And I still struggled and wrestled with God in, in this healing process, but I faithfully prayed that prayer for six months until she passed away. Did you share this with her, of course? No, I didn't. Um, you know, there was, it was interesting. I probably read, I don't know, thousands of pages of journals and documents on lung disease and pulmonary fibrosis and other things, hypertension, all these things that we thought might have been. And uh, she did not want to know about any of it. And she was incredibly brilliant, but she just, that was just the way she processed. She said, I don't want to, I don't want to know about it. And so there's this one particular issue I actually never, I never did tell her. Wow. Yeah. And what, it seemed like her own approach was one of seeing God's will present. Is that a good way of? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, again, she wrestled with that. And I think that, um, yeah, she wrestled with it. But clearly, just going back to that, you know, that one comment about, um, being weak, but relying on God more. There was something, there was a mystery there that was true and right for her. So let's talk a little bit about some of the fruit yeah. born from all of this suffering. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I, I don't, I don't wish anyone through that experience. Um, but part of that is what brought me to uh, the Catholic Church. So there's this interesting article for those who are not Catholic and want, want to engage in this. A friend of mine sent me an article from uh, written by Scott McKnight, who's a professor, pretty well-known evangelical professor, New Testament professor. And it was on, it's a study on uh, evangelical converts to Catholicism. And he talks about four common patterns in evangelical converts. And one of those patterns is trauma. Um, and he, his theory is that a person who experiences trauma in any level wants to be able to connect their trauma, their sufferings with a greater, um, you know, with a greater community. And, uh, this is why on a smaller micro level, this is why, you know, if you go through grieving or some sort, then you find, um, you know, grieving groups. Yeah, to, a support group of some yeah, kind. Yeah, exactly. Um, but... But in his sense, it was it, it was deeper than that. Anyway, I mean, I actually found that, at least in this particular issue, it was spot on. Because what I was longing for was a, a heritage of people that went deeper than my lifetime. Um, or even deeper than just a generation ago. And for me, that was, well, part of that was, the Catholic Church. Now, that certainly wasn't um, the nail on the coffin by any means. But so, so there's a whole aspect. Anyway, um, I'm getting off tra track. Really, well, actually, I like that. I think okay. it's a, that's not an angle I think most Catholics are even conscious of or thoughtful of. Yeah. I mean, especially in this country, we have uh, such a culture 
of individualism, yep. where we tend to view the community and the church just as an obstruction or as something just of our own creation. Um, Chesterton has that great line of tradition is the democracy of the dead in which we listen to the voices even of those who are no longer living and we don't arbitrarily favor only those who are currently walking the face of the earth. Right. There's this sense in which you're part of something much bigger, like you said, much bigger than your yeah. life, much bigger than your own generation. And then otherwise you become a very quickly a, prisoner to the fads the dictatorship of, yes. of the modern of the you know whatever the passing fad of the day is right so yeah not just like a support group but really like being part of something bigger that can maybe give it sounds like meaning yeah uh, to suffering yes so that's exactly what began to happen so i would say um so here's what happened after glow died i stayed in chicago for six months uh, I thought that this was a good time for me to just let the fog clear a little bit before I could make an objective decision. And I realized after that six months that it was pertinent for me to uh, to uproot my family and to go back deeper to my roots, which were in Kansas. So this is where I grew up and this is where my parents were. My, my mom had some bandwidth to help me uh, with the girls. And so I decided to resign and to move back. Um, so I did. Now, interestingly, the, the day that I turned in my resignation, I clearly remember this, I walked around the corner to a cigar bar and I smoked a cigar and on my Kindle, there came up a book that it, it was marketed to me. And the book was written by Christian Smith, who, who's an author that I've read quite a bit, uh, moral therapeutic deism, that, that kind of popular term is coined by him. Um, anyway, this book, the title of this book was How to Go from Being a Good Evangelical to a Committed Catholic in 95 Difficult Steps. And the 95, of course. Is a pun or a playoff of Luther's 95 Theses. Um, so it, I, it was 99 cents. I had a cigar. I had at least 45 minutes to waste there. Basically a penny a step. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I bought it. And I started reading and it did something. It sparked enough of seeds of, of, of doubt in my, in my belief system that it just, it just, it did something. It sparked something. So from that point, so literally that night, I actually texted a good friend of mine, um, Von Kohler, who had converted from being a Baptist pastor to a Catholic about three years prior to this current moment that I'm talking about. And he just told me, he just gave me a, a number of references to start reading. Now, what were some of the things that jumped, if you still remember, I don't even know if this yeah. is. Do you still you remember any of the particular steps that? No, I don't. But here's the thing about Christian Smith, uh, at least this book in particular. So it's 95 different, different steps. So obviously, and it's only probably about 150 pages. So you're talking about two pages roughly per step. So what he does is he gives two-page kind of appetizers mm -hmm. that he doesn't answer any questions. All he's doing is he's asking you, what about this in the evangelical world? There's some inconsistency here. You need to think about that more deeply. So I want to, I want to pause on this point. Yeah. I think this is a huge thing that Catholics miss. So often when we're talking with Protestants or when we're talking with atheists, when we're talking basically with anyone who isn't Catholic, our first step is to say, here's how I would answer that as a Catholic. And that nine times out of ten mm. is not the right step to take. Right. Um, Thomas Kuhn, in uh, his book about scientific revolutions. I'm going to stop you there. You can go on. Thomas Kuhn is a large part of this book. Oh. He talks about the, the, appendix of, the appendix of this book is about radical transformation in societies. And he takes that and he talks about radical transformation in an individual and how that happens. So anyway, Perfect. Well, it sounds like I'm, I'm getting yeah. the, the general gist of the direction he's going. The, his point is that like, even when you're talking about science, like uh, back in the days of geocentrism, when they thought the earth was the center of the universe, they were seeing things like the, the movements or apparent movements of different heavenly bodies and seeing how it didn't quite track with what they thought it would be. 
And they found ways of explaining away this kind of incongruous evidence in really mathematically sophisticated ways. Like, this idea we have of, like, 16th century and prior uh, scientists being just idiots or being ignorant, not true. They were incredibly scientifically adept. They had the wrong interpretive framework. They were seeing the data and explaining it through the eyes they'd already kind of adapted. And so the first thing was to show, wait a second, what about this, 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 and this? All of this, like, supposedly outlier data that your theory doesn't explain very well. Once you have enough of that, once your pile of we can't quite figure this stuff out gets large enough, because it's not going to be one thing right. most of the time. It's right. going to be a lot of things. Then you can say, okay, it seems like your theory isn't working well in a lot of areas. Let's try this theory out. See how all of these things come together? And suddenly it all sort of uh, makes sense. Yep. I use a lot of, probably an embarrassing number of them, true crime analogies in this podcast. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're convinced a person is innocent or guilty, there's probably a little bit of evidence you can't explain. When that evidence gets large enough, that's when you start thinking about switching your verdict. Not just that the other side can make a colorable claim, mm -hmm. but that you have evidence you can't explain. And that starts to weigh on you a lot. So it sounds like Christian Smith is is just bringing that pile yes, into that, view. That's exactly right. And I would say for those who are perhaps wanting to become Catholic or thinking about it, um, or even for those who like giving Scott Hahn's book out, you know, Rome Sweet Home, Christian Smith's book, To the Evangelical, I will say this, is 20 times more potent than, than Scott Hahn's book. Uh, because the because he speaks in the language of an evangelical, and it's not just scripture, it's all of these different other facets that he's bringing to the table. And he's again, he's not he's not presenting an argument saying, "Ha ha, I got you. You have to become Catholic now." All he's doing is he's poking holes and he's saying he's sowing seeds of doubt. And when you sow enough seeds of doubt. Like what you're saying, you have to, the, the true evangelical, the honest evangelical has to begin to question, boy, is this the right frame of reference? And that's what it, that's what it did for me. It started this and it brought to light a lot of things that I already had been wrestling through. <clears throat> wow. That's a quite an endorsement of a 99 cent book. So yeah. we'll have a link to that. Which is in, no longer 99 cents, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. We'll have a link in the show notes so you can decide if it's worth a read. It sounds yeah, certainly absolutely. like if it's, you've got evangelicals in your life, or maybe you are an evangelical who this has piqued your interest, you can just say, no, you're totally wrong. Scott Hahn's book is better. Whatever it looks like, <laughs> uh, I encourage you to take, take a read. I'm certainly going to after this. Good. So, okay. So that starts to tear down the old framework. What gets you further than that? Yeah. Let me. So let me just say there, there's a few important things. Um justification by faith alone was already beginning to unravel and it had been unraveling for 10 years of my life prior to this. So when I went to Trinity, um, there's something in the, in the evangelical world called, uh, justificated covenantal nomism, which is just covenant nomism is law. So how do you understand the covenant and the relationship between the covenant and the law and justification is part of that. Anyway, there's this huge debate um, really, in the continuums are John Piper and N.T. Wright. Uh, John Piper believes in what's called imputed righteousness. N.T. Wright believes in what's called infused righteousness or some form of it. And they have this huge debate that's going on. And really, over the last five years of, of studying in this, I was, I was falling much more towards N.T. Wright in this thing. That's important because... Sorry, basically, yep. it's are we declared righteous right. or through the Holy Spirit, are we actually made righteous? Right, absolutely. And that's going to make a big difference for whether you just believe faith alone is what saves us or that faith is something that's actually transformative, not just in a legal fiction sort of way. Right. I mean, Calvin, listeners should know, was a lawyer and he treated salvation basically as declaring the guilty innocent, like a legal fiction. And that's kind of this... In an overly simplified form. That's right. this kind of imputed justification or imputed righteousness. Right. Um, whereas N.T. Wright is saying, not so. Right. Something actually transformative happens where you actually are righteous. You're not just... Uh, Luther gives the example of snow covering a pile of dung. 
Right. But you still remain uh, kind of a piece of crud. And and so Inti Rice saying, no, you actually stop being so cruddy. Right. Absolutely. Um, if you, yeah. I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. Now, just to be fair, I think Catholics can straw man Protestants and say, oh, they just believe in this justification by faith and they don't believe in getting better at all. And that's totally false. I would say many, many Protestants believe in the concept of sanctification and getting holier, but it's just, it's communicated in ways that are perhaps unclear. And its relationship to salvation yeah. Yeah. is is not causal. It's, if anything, an effect. Right. That you don't, uh, you're not saved because you're holy, you're holy because you're saved. Yes. Something like that. Yes. And so the idea of... Uh, Salvation being a journey or a process rather than a one-time right. declaration. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, so the, you're dealing with all of those. So and I'm those are with critical that. issues. Yeah, absolutely. Justification was huge. And, and obviously connected to justification is, well, um, a number of other issues, particularly morality and the church. And here's where that comes in. The denomination that I was a part of, which is the PCUSA, it was the bad, the bad guys of the Presbyterian Church, uh, the liberals, the whatever you want to call them. Um, so when I got ordained into this church, the congregation that I was a part of was wholeheartedly faithful and um, r- really good. But years into my ordination or into my pastorate, um, the denomination I was a part of decided finally after 25 years of struggling that they were going to ordain practicing homosexuals as ministers. And uh, this was a huge issue because, so a number of reasons. First of all, it says pretty clearly in Scripture in six different places that homosexual activity is immoral. Uh, secondly, um, to to highlight or to heighten a person who's struggling with that or actively practicing it, maybe not even struggling with it, actively practicing it to the position of pastor was a huge issue. And then, and then thirdly is how does morality all of a sudden just change overnight? Um, so does a democracy just simply change overnight? And this goes back even to what you were saying, Joe, alluding to with being connected to a sense of people or a heritage that's deeper than just one or two generations. Because if you're not connected to that, then all of a sudden you are controlled by the whim of the culture. And this to me was an indication that at least the denomination I was a part of was being, being controlled by the whim of, of the day, which is, is well, it was, and still is homosexual uh, behavior. So anyway, long story short, we, I reneged my ordination, our congregation unanimously pulled out from the denomination and we began to continue the journey of what other evangelicals do, which is um, you stay faithful to some type of congregation. That congregation grows into a body larger than just a congregation. And over years, as time develops, eventually there will be a decision, which is a major issue. And they split over that major issue. And now you have two sections or two splinters. You have one that's liberal and you have one that's conservative. And the conservative branch goes on. And then it will split again eventually in 30 or 50 or 100 years uh, when another major issue pops up. That's the whole, I mean, in a nutshell, that's the the whole history of most U.S. denominations. Right. What's striking, again, from a Catholic perspective, in Galatians 5, St. Paul speaks against schisms as being mortal sin. I mean, he doesn't use it. He says people who do this don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Mm. So if you're forbidden from heresy and forbidden from schism, if you don't have a church you can trust to get everything infallibly right, you're in a catch-22 where you have to either sin or sin, and there's no way out of it. Yeah. And so one of the theological issues that, as a Catholic, I think it's worth raising is a good God doesn't put people in a situation where they're forced to sin or else it, it becomes incoherent. A situation where you're required to do something that you're forbidden to do is, is illogical and contrary to, mm. to truth and goodness in God. Yeah, I I mean, the issue for me was this. And this began making connections, right? Ever since Martin Luther, when, when Scripture 
is able to be interpreted by anybody, which it is. Scripture is able to be interpreted by anybody. But when that particular interpretation takes precedence over another person's interpretation and there is no binding authority, then there is ultimately, inevitably, division. Um, And that's what happens. So it really began to get me to think, well, first of all, morality. How is morality defined? Because clearly in this case, it was just majority rules. And secondly, uh, there's an importance to authority. There's something about authority which is intrinsically necessary and connected to Scripture. Um, And for me... It was get, that experience. It wasn't. It didn't turn me to become Catholic, but it got me to think. It was like with the Thomas Kuhn idea. You know, it was just another pie, another plate that got me to think something beyond my current situation, and that was huge for me. So I would say justification, uh, authority, and morality were were huge issues. And here's the other thing. I mean, when you look back at the Catholic Church at that time. Uh, I was an NPR head, huge NPR head in Chicago, and would listen when they when they talked about these issues. The number one person that they'd always go to on these big issues was Cardinal Francis George, hmm. and I would listen to him, and he had such a clarity in his responses to the moral issues, and I was just like, man, how can he? I was envious, not envious, envious in a good way. Like, man, he has such a clarity and a calm and a peace about his response. And it's just so forthright. And it was so different than how an evangelical would respond because it really is. It can be, you can talk to one evangelical and it can be a totally different answer than another evangelical. But Cardinal Francis George had a, had a strong repose about him that uh, I just deeply admired. That's tremendous. I have a funny Cardinal George story that I'll save for another time in the right. interest of time. Yeah. I want to hear okay. how uh, how you get from there yeah. all the way in. We're, we're so close. Yeah. You've got all so, these issues that have come up. So I began reading. So my friend Von Kohler recommends these books. And ultimately, I just began to read the catechism. And I read it with an open mind, but I read it thinking, ah, there's got to be stuff that I'm going to disagree with. And I read, 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 and there really wasn't that much stuff that I disagreed with. I mean, if anything, there's a few Marian passages here and there that I struggled with, but other than that, I mean, it was rock solid. So uh, this whole time, I'd still wrestled with the suffering that I was that I had experienced and that I was continuing to experience uh, in my loneliness and in my grief and in working with Calissa and Corinna, raising them as a single father. Um, and I came across the, the catechism in the sacramental section about um, the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And this struck me. And this struck me profoundly because I think through it, I realized that the Catholic Church is not 50 years old. It's not 100 years old. It is 2,000 years old. And I think about just even my own history experience, the, the bubonic plague and, you know, the black death and the wars and um, every single society that the Catholic Church has gone through, they've experienced death like no other. So, of course. The Roman persecution. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, of course they've thought through it and thought through suffering and have given purpose to it. So, I came across... Paragraph 1505, and keep in mind, I was struggling with the Gospels and Jesus healing people and why he didn't heal my wife. And here it is. I'll just read it. He says, it says this, paragraph 1505 of the Catechism. Moved by so much suffering, Christ not only allows himself to be touched by the sick, but he makes their miseries his own. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases, but he did not heal all the sick. And this sentence right here struck me. Okay, why? Why didn't he heal all the sick? It says this, his healings were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. They announced a more radical healing, the victory over sin and death through his Passover. On the cross, Christ took upon himself the whole weight of evil and took away the sin of the world of which illness is only a consequence. 
By his passion and death on the cross, Christ has given a new meaning to suffering. It can henceforth configure us to him and unite us with his redemptive passion. So I'm reading this thing and it answers everything. Hmm. Chad, pray that the kingdom of God might come through her suffering. His healings were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. Why didn't she get healed? Well, it says very clearly he didn't heal all the sick on purpose. Why? Because there was a more radical healing, the victory over sin and death through his Passover. And then uh, Glow's revelation back, you know, four years prior to this, where it can henceforth configure us to him and unite us with his redemptive passion. I just read this and everything clicked. It was like the the piece of puzzle that puts everything together and just completely wept really a a weeping of joy that God through the catechism answered this year and a half long wrestling with God in one succinct paragraph. And it was beautiful. That is beautiful. I'm reminded of a few things when you say that first, I think it ties in maybe in not an obvious way, to the earlier thing you were talking about, about infused versus imparted justification. That the whole point N.T. Wright and others are making, and that the Catholic Church makes, is that we're not just declared holy, we become holy. Meaning, Christ lives in us, and all the highs and lows of our life are, are united to him, or can be united to him, if we'll just take the step. And so, this is, when he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Well, the branches live... They're not just declared alive. And some of them don't bear fruit and are cut off. But the ones that do live, it's because the vine is living through them and bearing fruit through them. So St. Paul says in Colossians 1, uh, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And you could spend an entire episode, I know, just unpacking all the dimensions to that. He's rejoicing in suffering. He has this incredible thing about making up what's lacking in Christ's sufferings. And this is all for the church. Like it's for the kingdom in this radical way uh, that really is kind of incomprehensible and and should lead us into a deeper meditation on it. The other thing, uh, Tractate 17 in St. Augustine's Tractates on the Gospel of John. These are short reflections he has on just the entire Gospel of John. They're beautiful, they're rich. He gets to John 5, the first half, uh, where the the pool, where there are all of these sick people, and here's what he says. He says, Jesus entered a place where lay a great multitude of sick folk, blind, lame, withered, and being the physician both of souls and bodies, and having come to heal all the souls of them that should believe, of those sick folk, he chose one for healing. And he says, if we think about this with a commonplace mind, With the mere human understanding, as regards power, it was not a great matter that he performed. And as regards goodness, he performed too little. There lay so many there, and yet only one was healed. While he could, by a word, have raised them all up. So then Augustine starts to explore, well, why? And his answer basically, I mean, think back to John 6. In the next chapter, when Jesus has the multiplication of the loaves, the people turn their eyes off of Jesus onto the free food. And so the miracle, the blessings, becomes an obstruction, just as material blessing and everything else, as you've already seen, can become uh, an obstruction to seeing our need for God. And so Augustine ultimately concludes that the eyes of the blind that were opened by those acts of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ were again closed in death, and limbs of the paralytics that received strength were loosened again in death. And whatever was, for a time, made whole in mortal limbs came to naught in the end. But the soul that believed passed to eternal life. And so he just says, basically, he does enough to lead you to faith, but not so much that you get focused on the miracles in, in a negative way. You've got to see through the miracles yep. to him. So I, I don't know. I just wanted to throw those resources out there. I don't have a question attached to it, but I'm interested in your response. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly right. I don't really have much to respond. I would say I would say very much this, just reiterate it. When we go through suffering, it's very much like John of the Cross, right? Uh, 
God has a desire to fill all things. We are creatures who are full of things. Uh, the way to get rid of ourselves is to say no to these things that we think are going to fulfill us, and we don't. And so God uses suffering to, uh, to empty us of these things. And I think that, you know, that suffering can be great and that suffering can be minuscule. But at the end of the day, we should be learning from the suffering and realizing that God is so much more fulfilling than these temporal things, whatever these things are. And he can only fill a heart that's empty. And, he can and if only... he has to empty it himself, it's not going to feel good. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's, like you said, there's, we could talk hours and hours about this, um, this idea of redemptive suffering. And for me, it was, it was really, I think, the, it was the final nail that, that did it for me. I remember after this, I really, it was cruise control from here on out. Um, yeah. I think that's a good place to uh, end this. I'm sorry, the hour flew by. <laughs> Let's close with a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. And then the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.